there than it will to read it. Uh, just one verse today. That's page 948 if you have one of the black hardcover Bibles. Romans chapter 12, verse 9. And as we read, remember, we're reading God's Word. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. That's God's Word. You may be seated. I, I read it as slow as I could, honestly. I was trying to draw it out a little bit, but it's, it's short, short and sweet, but there's a lot here that, that we're going to be able to look at. You know, one of the words that people talk about a lot today, and I don't know that it's more common today than in times past, but, but everyone today says they want to be authentic. They want to be real. And, you know, young people talk about how much they value uh, environments and people and organizations that are real that it's not a facade, that they are what they claim to be and what they imagine themselves to be. And, and I think that that's true. I think we do value authenticity. I think there's something about the image of God in us that values that. I also think many of us are prone to like the idea of authenticity more than we actually like authenticity. Oftentimes, we want things that seem genuine even if they're not. Uh, one of my favorite examples of this is I was spending some time with our architect, the guy that helped design this space and is, is helping us with plans for the future. And, and he talked about how a, a company's values should be integrated with the kind of, of spaces that they create. And he, he was talking about how ironic it is to him that there's this particular coffee company that you might have heard of um, that's like everywhere around the country and world. And uh, one of their core values is authenticity. He said, but sometimes I'll go into this coffee shop and they talk about being authentic while I'm standing on a faux wood floor. And he's saying, I, I, faux wood floor, I don't, that doesn't matter to me, but you say you're authentic, but then now the materials you're having us stand on are inauthentic. They appear to be what they're not. And the reality is, as we uh, turn our attention in the scriptures over these uh, number of weeks, as we sort of slow down and, and pour into uh, Romans 12 and try to see what we can get there, as we talk about love, the reality is, when it comes to love, we want to appear genuine. We want to appear authentic, oftentimes, more than we actually want to be authentic. We want to be known as a genuinely loving person, but to actually pay the price to really genuinely love somebody, it's a high price. It's costly. We hesitate to do that. But that's what we're called to here in the Scripture. It's a totally countercultural way to think, to not just appear loving, but to actually be loving. And that's really where uh, the Apostle Paul, as he's writing this, where he started uh, back in chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. If you have your Bible, go ahead and let's look at that for just a moment. Uh, he, we had spent months and months, and he had spent 11 chapters talking about this amazing grace of God. Uh, the, the mercies of God, who, who is, that God has come to us in the person of Jesus. And he says in chapter 12, verse 1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, in view of all the mercy we've seen, I appeal to you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Paul says, in, in light of all the mercies that God has shown you, I want you to come and present yourself as a sacrifice to him every day. You no longer live for yourself, you live for him. And that begins with changing how you think. And so in verse 2, he said, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Christians are to be new people. Christians are to be people who think 
and live and feel differently than the rest of the world. And nothing is more countercultural to that than love. So it makes sense that the rest of this chapter really is the Apostle Paul describing what love looks like. And in our uh, verse here today, in verse 9, that's actually how he begins. He says, let love be genuine. Let love be genuine. Now, it's interesting because in the Greek text, there's actually no verb here. It's just two words, genuine love or love unhypocritical. That's just what it is. It's kind of this banner statement. It's not even a command to it. It's just a statement. Uh, Love unhypocritical, then followed by all of these little commands about what that means. And so that phrase, let love be genuine, is the banner over which verses 9 through 13 flies, Uh, right? So so that flies over that whole thing. So in verses 9 to 13, there's like 10 different ways that uh, the Apostle Paul here describes what genuine love looks like. And so we'll look at a couple of those today. But first, let's just think for a moment about what is genuine love. This word love is a is a word that means a warm regard, a deep interest in one another. And it's interesting, the specific word that Paul here uses, uh, because the, the early church, as they were trying to describe the kind of love that God has for us, and as they were trying to describe the, the kind of love that they, had, they were supposed to have for one another, the, the words that were most commonly used in uh, Greek literature for love just didn't seem to capture it. There were two really common words for love that were used during these particular days. The first one was eros. Eros is a a word that describes passionate love, romantic love, sensual love. It's got a more physical and a more raw kind of emotion to it. That's eros. The other kind of love is is phylos. The idea uh, from that becomes Philadelphia or brotherly love. It's, It's this familial love. It's this loyal love that comes from family. And the Christians looked at that and they said, yeah, we're supposed to love God passionately and we're supposed to be family, but, but that doesn't seem to quite capture how profoundly powerful God's love is. So there was another word, and it wasn't used very commonly until the church got a hold of it. And the church said, this is the word that isn't out there much in the world, but this word describes the kind of love that God has for us. And that was the word agape. And agape means deep unconditional love. It's the kind of love that God has for us. It's a warm regard and interest in somebody else regardless of circumstance. That's the word that Paul uses here. Let love be genuine. In other words, the first thing we got to see about that is this is, this is loving unconditionally. And we're going to see in the rest of this passage, Paul is calling us to love in all the different ways. He's, he's calling us to love with passion. He's calling to love because we're family. But it starts with saying, I'm going to love unconditionally because that's how God has loved me. Let love be genuine. The word genuine there means without hypocrisy. It literally means, this is an interesting definition I found, it literally means unskilled at acting. That's what that word genuine means unskilled at acting. In other words, not good at faking it, not good at playing a part. In Greek drama, the hypocrite, the the hypocrite was the one who wore a mask, right? And so this is saying, let love be genuine, unmasked, unskilled in the art of acting. What you see is what you get. That's what we're called to. Let love be genuine. Do you love like that? I want to be known as one that loves like that. I'd like to love like that, but if I have to be honest, 
I look at the way I love even my family, the people I say are dearest to me, the way I love friends and strangers. I, I, I can't always say. I, in fact, I don't know if I can often say that I love unconditionally not playing a part. If you want to talk about countercultural, if you want to talk about counter to conforming to the world, that's it, isn't it? really, genuinely, truly, not faking it, interested in other people. That's what we're called to. Now, that love, as I said, is going to branch out and look like a number of different things. And Paul gives us two things that that kind of love looks like here in this passage. That's where we're going to go for the rest of the time, is we're going to see that genuine love hates evil, and genuine love holds fast to what is good. Hates evil and holds fast to what is good. Genuine love, number one, hates evil. Look at it again. He says, let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. This word abhor means to have a vehement dislike for something, to hate strongly, to regard with disgust, to detest with horror. So you get what he's saying? Let love be genuine. Detest what is evil. Be horrified by what is evil. Be disgusted at what is evil. When I think of, of, of that kind of disgust, I inevitably think of salmon. <laughs> um, and, and, and I'm disappointed, honestly, because when I was in college, I spent a couple summers in Alaska, and I was in a little town of Kenai. Some of the best fishing in the world is on the Kenai River. And I spent a couple summers there, did lots of salmon fishing, loved salmon, had a lot of different ways uh, that people cooked it. And Molly had this recipe that, that I just absolutely loved, and it was incredible. It was really my favorite thing. If she said, I'll make anything for you, there was this one salmon recipe that I loved. And she made it, and we had a little bit left over. And my love for salmon lasted until the time that I had had salmon that was left over just a little too long. Ever had that? So I don't know how long it had been, but I ate it, and it tasted fine, and a few hours later, it didn't taste as good. <laughs> and maybe you've had a food poisoning kind of experience, and you know that if you've had that, when you look at that food again, or when you smell it, or when even it comes up in conversation, there's a part of you that's like, oh, I don't, right? I, I've actually, Molly has gone, hey, do you want to try it again? And I've like got it on my tongue, like, Bleh, and I just can't even, I can't do it. Why? Because it's detestable. It's disgusting. I'm horrified at it. And that is the kind of feeling that Paul is saying genuine love has toward evil. Disgusted, repulsed. Not having made peace with it. Not sort of okay with it. Not like, well, I'll just explain it away because this is just part of my personality or this is part of my upbringing. Or that. Disgusted at it. Abhor what is evil. Now, it's interesting, the word evil, right, when we think of that word, we often think of, like, the extreme forms of things that are bad, right? So there's bad things in the world, and then there's evil. That's not what's being talked about here. Here, this word means morally wrong, sinful, something that misses the mark of God's standard, something that is wrong, morally objectionable, according to God, which isn't that interesting, that we're so into comparing ourselves that evil is only for those really, really, really bad people, but in God's eyes, anything we do that's wrong is evil. So hate, 
abhor, be disgusted by anything that's wrong. Now, isn't it interesting? Paul says, genuine love, hate what is evil. Isn't it weird that, that the first thing that comes to mind about how we love is hating something? I mean, that just seems kind of odd, but, but not if you think about it, because you know for, for the, the people that you have genuine love for, you want their good. It's part of what love is, is you care for them. And if you see something that is getting in the way of their ultimate good, you hate it, right? This is why, uh, this is why when, when your child runs out into the street, you run after them and grab them. Not because you don't want them to have fun, but because you hate the idea of a bus hitting them. Right? You, you, you get in the way of things that are not for their good. It's absolutely loving to hate what is bad for the people you love. That's absolutely loving. I love this quote by Becky Pippert. Uh, she's an author. Here's what she says. She says, think of how we feel when, someone we when we see someone we love ravaged by unwise actions or relationships. Real love stands against the deception, the lie, the sin that destroys. The fact is, anger isn't the opposite of love. Hate is, and the final form of hate is indifference. I've often said uh, that the opposite of love isn't hate, it's selfishness. And that's essentially what she's saying. Hate is, the ultimate form of hate is indifference. What's indifference? Indifference is selfishness. It, it would be seeing your kid run out into the street and going, okay. Oh, whatever. I don't want to pull a muscle. Right? It's selfish. And, and so when we, when we hate what is evil in other people, in our culture, in ourselves, that's a form of loving someone genuinely. Well, why don't we do that then? Why don't we have such disgust for evil? Why do we sort of wink at it? Why do we sort of laugh at it? Why do we just kind of go, well, it just is what it is, and oh well. Why don't we feel that kind of Revulsion. I think there are a number of reasons. The first reason I think that's, that's the case, why we resist this idea of hating evil, is it feels kind of judgmental, doesn't it? Who am I to say really what's evil? And, and, and if I point out something that's evil to someone else, you know, like they, they're bound to come back to me and point out something that I do that isn't very good. And, and I don't know, that just feels, feels judgmental. And even to call it sin or to call it wrong or to call it evil, it just, it just feels judgmental. I remember a number of years ago when George W. Bush uh, talked about the axis of evil. Remember him talking about that? That was the label he gave for Iraq and Iran and North Korea, the axis of evil. And he got lampooned for that, and maybe justifiably, I'm not sure. But what I remember a lot of the criticism was, was who is he to say what's evil? I mean, evil is such a big word. Who can call someone evil? And yet God here is saying anything you do that's wrong is evil, and you need to hate it. I think another reason we resist this is when we love somebody, uh, it often distorts our perspective of what's good and evil. Instead of thinking about what's good and evil the way God defines it, we de do it based on how the person we love feels. So if a person we love is doing something that's bad for them, but it makes them happy, we feel like, well, it wouldn't be good for me to get in the way of that. It wouldn't be good for me to try to help them or stop them because it makes them happy. And if it makes them happy, it must be good for them. And so we get distorted by that. The, the example I think of this is, is you know, the little, the little toddler, the two-year-old, who is constantly yelling in his mommy's face, no, and then laughs. And everyone's like, oh, it's, isn't he so, he's so sassy. No, he's a demon. <laughs> like, project this 20 years forward, and it's not cute at that point, right? 
But what happens is the parent goes, oh, he's so cute, and, and the, the view of what's good and bad is distorted by the emotion of that love experience. And the Scripture says genuine love hates what is evil, and so genuine love would be willing to discipline that child, not out of anger, out of love, trying to correct that sort of behavior. And we're to do that with one another. That's how, one of the ways, not the main way that we love one another, is to prevent, uh, pr- prevent the, the harm that comes when we disregard the way God says we should live. I, I like this proverb in Proverbs 27, 6. It explains this. It says, faithful are the wounds of a friend, profuse are the kisses of an enemy. Someone that only tells you what you want to hear, they're not a real friend. A, a real friend occasionally will wound you for your good. Now, this doesn't mean that we all have like a little junior Holy Spirit badge, right? That we sort of pull out to like just evaluate everybody and sniff out everything that anyone might be doing wrong. But this is saying when we see something in someone we love that is harmful for them, we say something. But that's hard to do. That's one of the reasons we resist it. Now, all of that, that it feels judgmental and our views distorted, that's talking about evil outside of us. But what about the evil inside? Because this verse doesn't just say genuine love hates evil in others. We're very good at hating evil in others. This says genuine love hates evil, period. The evil in others and the evil in us. I don't have to look very far. I don't have to think very hard to see a lot of evil in me. Why are we so at peace with it? Why instead of being disgusted or being repulsed, why are we so okay with it? Yeah, it's just how I am. You know, I've tried to get over it, but, you know, just I'll struggle with it till the day I die. Oh, well, why? I think there's a couple reasons. One is I think we like it. Right? Someone said if sin wasn't fun, you wouldn't do it. And if it's not fun, you're not doing it right. Right? Sin is, there's an element of fun to this. There's an element of we really like this. It's, there's an enjoyable thing. And as sick and twisted as, as it is, we like it. So think about, think about things that the world wouldn't call evil, but God would, like gossip. You find a juicy bit of information that's going to make someone else look bad, and you want to share it with somebody else, or you want to hear it. So you feed that. that that's evil in God's eyes. That's sin. But why do we do that? Because there's something twisted and dark about our hearts that loves hearing about the misfortune of other people. It makes us feel better. Right? Think about fudging the truth, lying, exaggerating a little bit to make yourself look better. We love to do that. That is wrong. That is sinful. That is based on pride. But why do we do it? Because it makes us feel good. It makes us look good. It makes us seem funny. It makes, us, it makes people like us. Think about a sin like lust. Lust is looking at someone or something as, a, as an object instead of as a person. And so a person that is made in God's image all of a sudden becomes an object to fulfill your inner mental fantasy. You dehumanize them. Why do you do that? Because it feels good. And it's private and no one sees. And you can kind of let your mind run. Think about envy. Envy being jealous of what someone else has. Why do we do that? 
I, this is one I, I don't even fully understand. Maybe it makes us just feel better about, well, if I had what they had, then, I, you know, then I'd be better off than I am. And maybe it's a way to blame shift or a way to make ourselves look better. But we do it ultimately because there's something satisfying about it. Or discontent. Some people have a whole, they, their whole life is just filled with complaining about what they don't have or who they aren't or what they've missed out on. We, we somehow, something about all that stuff, we like it or we wouldn't do it. And then the other reason is I think we just drift into it. Right? It's just interesting to me. If, if, if you drift, you never drift toward obedience to God and holiness. You always drift away. Why is that? Because the flow of the world, conforming to the world, is always drifting away from God. Right? And so you've had this experience when you've been out in the ocean and you've been playing and you kind of lost track of time and you know, okay, my stuff is there by the blue house and you're playing and an hour later you realize the blue house is over there. And I didn't swim over here. I just, I just drifted. And that's how this is. We, we drift into sin. We don't intentionally often choose it. We don't go, you know what? I want my life to be marked by jealousy and gossip. <laughs> no one ever said that. But we drift there, and we find that, yeah, I kind of like this. And it would take a little bit of effort and work to hate it and to be repulsed by it. Even our efforts to overcome sin often are very selfish. Rather than thinking about how it hurts our ability to love people, we just want to overcome it just to make ourselves look good, which is another form of pride. My pastor in college is a guy named... Mike Shea, and I'm so thankful to the Lord for his ministry, and I'll, I'll never forget this particular thing that he said in a sermon he did in Galatians. Here, here's what he said. He said, the moral imperative of the Christian life is not just stop sinning, but pursue love. And you can't do one without the other. We are frequently frustrated in our struggle with sin because we oppose it in such a self-centered way. We hear ourselves talking about my struggle and my sin and my victory and my defeat and my sanctification and the way my sin makes me feel bad about myself. And we are stuck in a quagmire of selfishness. We need to think rather about how our sin keeps us from loving others and hurts others and grieves the Spirit of God who loves us. Genuine love hates what is evil. And so, this reframes our perspective, right? Think about it. What is gossiping? Gossiping is not just dishonoring God. Gossip is hurting other people. It's a failure to love. What is fudging and stretching the truth to make yourself look better? It is hiding from other people who you really are, which is not very loving to them. What is envy? Envy is looking at other people, wishing they were down here and you were up here, not loving. What is lust? Lust is not just a sin against God. Lust is turning someone who is created in his image into an object for your own pleasure. It's using that person. That's not loving. And it's not loving to the other people in your life who should not be objectified. Discontent is not just being discontent with what God has done, but it puts all kinds of pressure on everyone around you to prop up what you want or to have to go out and make more money or be able to buy that or do all this kind of thing or be more like them. It's unfair. It's unloving. So what would happen 
if we reframed the things that we struggle with, the attitudes that we have that we know don't honor God, the behaviors that we have that we know are wrong, what if instead of just thinking about how that was hurting and dishonoring God, what if we also thought about how this is hurting other people? This is a failure to love. That's what Paul's talking about here. Genuine love is disgusted by what's evil out there and in here. Genuine love says, God, I want to love people. And this sin in my life, this attitude in my heart is keeping me from loving people the way you've called me to. Help me, forgive me. Genuine love hates evil. Genuine love also, however, loves good, holds fast to what is good. Genuine love holds fast to what is good. We see that in verse 9. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. This word hold fast means to glue together. That's literally what it means. Glue yourself to what is good. It means to adhere. It's the same word that's used when it talks about that a man will leave father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Paul is saying, get as far as you can from evil and get as close as you can to good. That's the opposite of what we often do. We go, how close can I get to the evil without it technically being evil? Bad question. Hate it and glue yourself to what's good. So as you look at all the different commands in Scripture, one of the things that's interesting is that you see there are a number of categories of sins. And the way theologians have described this is that there are sins of commission and sins of omission. Sins of commission are the, the sins you commit, right? Do not lie, and you lie. You committed sin. Do not look at a woman with lust in your heart. You do it, you sin. Do not be envious of your neighbor. You do that, you commit that sin, you, you sin. That's a sin of commission. But there's also sins of omission. This is where you fail to do what you should do. This is where you're commanded to do something that you don't do. Not only do you do the opposite, but it's a good thing that you, you don't do. So Proverbs uh, 3 talks about this. It says there, Do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is in your power to do it. So the first part of this verse, hating what's evil, that's talking about sins of commission. Get rid of those. Hate those. Be, despise sins of commission. The second part here says, think also about sins of omission. Good that you could do. It's in your power to do it. You encounter someone and you could encourage them. You encounter someone and you could be a blessing to them or give a gift to them. You could do something good for them. And you don't? That's also sin. And so this is a perspective changing thing. This is saying, God, I want to get as far away as I can. I don't, I don't want anything that's, that's morally objectionable. I don't want to be near it. And God, help me to be glued to what's good. Well, what's good? We could make a long list of that, couldn't we? When we talked in detail about what's bad, what, what's good? Well, there's a lot of different things that are good. One thing that's good is uh, just realizing you need God, that God is good. Right? When, when someone came to Jesus and said, good teacher, what did he say? He said, hey, no one's good but God alone. So that means if we're going to cling to what is good, we're clinging to God. Listen, you cannot be close to God. You cannot be growing in your love of God and other people if you're not spending time with God. 
So whatever you're doing, and however busy you are, you're too busy not to spend time with God. Because you need Him in every one of those things that you're busy with. So clinging fast to God, saying, I'm going to spend some amount of time today connecting with God, praying to Him, reading His Word, writing down things that He's doing in my life, however that looks, saying, I need God. I'm going to cling to that idea. Another thing that is good that you might cling to would be the, the reality that all people matter to God. God loves the world. He loves everyone. He's made each person in his image. What if we remembered that? What if we were glued to that reality? As we watched Hollywood celebrities that we love to mock, or we listened to people on the opposite end of the political spectrum from us whose ideas we, are, we abhor. What about if it shaped the way that you interacted and thought about the people at your work that disgust you? The people at your work that annoy you. The neighbor that just always has junk in his yard. And you're like, pick it up. All of those things. What, what, if, what if you begin to go, all people matter to God. God loves and cares about each of those people, and I'm going to also. Another good thing. What if, what if you clung, what if you glued yourself to the idea that God is good all the time? What if, you, what if you clung yourself to that idea that God is always good, that everything he allows into your life is for his glory and your good, that no matter what, he's good? What if you hung on to that? Think about how much more thankful you'd be. Think about how much more courageous you'd be. Think about how much stronger your faith would be if you clung to what was good and encouraged others to do the same. What if you clung to the idea that it's never wrong to do the right thing? If I have an opportunity to obey, I'm going to do it. It's never wrong to do the right thing. What if you clung to that? What if you clung to that so tightly that this became your prayer? I love this prayer. I first heard this from a guy named Andy Stanley, and I I pray this for myself regularly, and I pray it for my kids uh, many nights when I pray over them. And here's the prayer. What if you prayed this? God, give me the wisdom to know what's right and the courage to do it no matter the cost. What if you prayed that and, not, and, and began to think that way? God, give me the wisdom to know what's right. What's the right thing to do here? Not in the world's eyes, not in my own eyes, in your eyes. God, give me the wisdom to do what's right. And God, give me the courage to do it no matter what it costs me. Listen, if you begin to pray that prayer, you begin to think that way, think about how it would affect your love for other people. Think about how much more bold you would be to to love others and care for them and sacrifice yourself. Genuine love hates evil and holds fast to what is good. Now, if you're thinking about this logically, you begin to ask some pretty important questions and pretty tough questions. And I, I thought of two that I think are pretty big questions. The first one is this. If, if this is true, how can we love the unlovely? If love hates what is evil, is disgusted by it, and holds fast to what's good, and we look around us and see so many people that are filled with sin, and so many people that are not particularly good, and especially the people we don't like and find annoying, they're really filled with a lot of evil, at least we think. If I'm supposed to 
hate what's evil and hold on to what's good, wouldn't that lead me to hate most people? How can I possibly love if that's what love is? And the second question that it raises, and I think the answer to this question actually answers both questions, but the second question is how can God possibly love us? God's the one that defines love. The Scripture says that that God is love. And this passage is written by the inspiration, the breathing out of the Spirit of God to Paul saying, this is what love is. Genuine love hates evil, holds fast to what is good. And God is love. So if God is love, then God detests what is evil, clings to what's good. Well, what's evil? Us. What's good? Him. And sin and disobedience and evil, it permeates every part of us. It doesn't mean we're as bad as we could be, but it's not like you can sort of separate out and go, well, here's the evil part of me. God hates that. But the rest of me, he loves. No, sin, it impacts your thoughts. It impacts your behavior. It impacts your attitudes and your emotions and your feelings and your beliefs. It permeates everything. How could God love us if this is what love is? Doesn't it seem impossible? Yet the answer to that question answers both questions. And here's how God loves us. He sends his son Jesus, who is good, to experience evil for us. And he treats his son on the cross as if he has all the evil that all of his people would ever do on him. Scripture says that Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin for us on the cross so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So Jesus on the cross is experiencing the full hatred and disgust of God of God towards sin. He experiences all of it. Have you ever wondered why Jesus is dying there and he's dying between two thieves and and he dies before them? They're still alive when Jesus gives up his spirit and dies. Do you know why? Well, it's because Jesus didn't just die of blood loss. Jesus didn't just die of a crown of thorns in his head or nails in his hands. Jesus died because the wrath of God against all the evil of all of his people was laid on him. It's amazing he lived that long. And God proved how much he hates evil by treating his own son with that kind of furious anger. So that the goodness of his son could be given to us. Nobody says it better than Pastor Tim Keller about this. He says, Jesus hates evil, sin, and death so much he was willing to come into this world and experience all of it himself so eventually he could destroy it without destroying us. That is good news. God loves us, and he has proven it by destroying ultimately the evil, even the evil in us, without destroying us. Which means if we've been loved like that, if we have been loved with that kind of agape, unconditional love, 
that's genuine. It doesn't get any more genuine than the Son of God saying, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. If we've been loved like that, then and only then can we love the unlovely. Otherwise, well, we could do it, but it wouldn't be genuine. So we go, well, I gotta, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try really hard to love this person, but deep down I hate them. I'm going to try really hard to love this person, but it's really just going to be a show. But for people who have been loved like this by God, we can move toward people that we find irritating and unlovely and evil. And we can move toward them in humility, knowing God has loved me when I was evil. While I was still a sinner, Christ died for me. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for sending your son Jesus to live and to die and to be raised in our place. And God, I, I am evil and I am wicked. And you have taken my evil and my wickedness and my sins, the sins of commission and the sins of omission, and you've laid the penalty for that on Jesus. And God, I'm trusting you to make me new. And I am thankful that you love me even before I become new and that you're making me new. So God, help me, help us to love one another with the kind of love that you've loved us with. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Amen, amen. Uh, we get to respond now. Uh, one of the main things we do is communion. And communion is just our weekly way to cling to what is good. So if you're a Christian in the room and you're going to take communion,